This morning I'd like to look into the book of Acts chapter 3 primarily. Um, we've looked at a lot of miracles over the last two uh, Sundays that God did on behalf of the nation of Israel in bringing them out of the bondage of Egypt. And then the miracles he did for his people between the time that they came out of Egypt to the time they came to Mount Sinai. Well, we're going to fast forward way over here to the New Testament this morning. We know in studying the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that this also was an age of miracles. We find where the Lord usually did one of three things, oftentimes two or three, and sometimes all three in one day. Sometimes he would teach, sometimes he would preach, sometimes he performed miracles. And again, most of the time he was doing a combination of those three. But now we find in Acts 3, shortly after the Lord has ascended back into heaven, he has sent his apostles out. We see the commission he gives them in Matthew 28 and 18, when he says, All power is given to be both in heaven and earth. Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you, and lo, I'll go with you all the way, even to the end of the world. Shortly after saying that, we find that the Lord left this earth and went back to heaven. So the apostles now go out. Eleven of those twelve apostles are identified for us in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 3, we have two. We have Peter and we have John. Now, we find them coming to our attention, first of all, back in the beginning of the ministry of Christ, when Christ walked with the shore in Galilee, and he called two men who were brothers. One was Peter and one was Andrew. He told them to follow him. He'd make them become fishers of men. He then went just a little further down. He saw two other brothers, James and John, told them the same thing. We find all four of these men immediately forsook their nets and began following the Lord Jesus Christ and he called them into what we call the apostleship. Overall, the Lord would call twelve. But as we study these four gospels, we find oftentimes the Lord took three of these twelve with him and then sometimes only two. Now the four that I mentioned here, Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James and John, are mentioned together one more time in Matthew 10. We find that the Lord gave a gospel commission, this first commission to the apostles, telling them that they were not to go the way of the Gentiles, the way of the Samaritans, but whether to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then they're mentioned one more time in Acts chapter 1. After his ascension, we find there were about 120 disciples that were following Christ. And of those 20, 120, we find the apostles, now 11 of them, listed. Now, in each of these three times, these four, these two sets of brothers are mentioned first. Now, they were together in the very beginning because they were partners in the fishing industry. James and John's father's name was Zebedee, and he had a, apparently a very successful uh, fishing business, and his two sons, along with Peter and Andrew, uh, labored together and worked together. Then these four became apostles together, as they were all personally called by the Lord Jesus Christ to be these apostles. Now, we find three of these four, Peter, James, and John, were with the Lord on special occasions. When the Lord took these three, we might call this the inner three, uh, the inner circle, you might say, and they went with him in various places, such as uh, to the household of Jairus, who had a 12-year-old daughter, and they witnessed him raising her from the dead. They were with him on the mountain of transfiguration when he was transfigured between Moses and Elias in the Old Testament day. 
uh, they were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he took those three, not all 12, but those three, took those three with him. And they witnessed what took place in the garden, of course, the sufferings of the Lord that he began to suffer there and experience. And also when the soldiers came with Judas's carriage and took Christ there and arrested him. They were with him on that occasion. But there were times when it was just the two of them, Peter and John. We find when the Lord was going to eat the last Passover supper that he used Peter and John to go into the city to locate the very place. Of course, Jesus already knew where the place was. He knew the location. He knew the place. He knew all the details about it. But he sent these two apostles. And so we find Peter and John had been together for a long time. We find where the Lord called 70 men on another occasion and sent them out in pairs, two by two. And this was very important because ministers, only ministers, know really what other ministers go through. Uh, you need as a church, you need to know as much as you can about it, but you have to be another minister to know what a minister goes through. And so ministers need each other's companionship. Ministers need each other's fellowship. Uh, ministers need each other to lean on, to talk to, to get counsel from and give counsel to, sometimes to weep with, sometimes to rejoice with and laugh with, one thing and another. And so it's very, very important. So the Lord sent them out in Paris for a reason. So Peter and John here, if you look uh, at these two men, you'll find them from Acts 3 to Acts 8. Uh, we'll find them mentioned together seven times. And so here in Acts chapter 3, we find where they're going up to the temple together. And I think about this a lot of times, how that word together, uh, you know, it means sometimes you're just with somebody. You're together with them. Uh, but you may be together with them and just really not be together with them, if you understand what I mean. You may see a husband and wife drive up in the car, they come to church together, but they may not have got here together. They might have been on different pages before they ever got here, and that shouldn't be the case, but sometimes that's the way it works. So it's a sense of being together, but it's also very important that we be together. In the book of Amos, the Lord asked a question. He says, can two walk together except they be agreed? Husbands and wives need to be in agreement on the essentials of life, of marriage, their goals, their objectives, etc. A church family needs to be together. You know, to be together, we need to recognize that we're all different. There's no two children of God that's exactly alike. That's why the Apostle Peter, in his writings, referred to the Lord's people as lively stones. Do you notice he didn't say they were lively bricks? Bricks look the same. They're the same size, same color, same weight. Well, God's people are not that way. We're not bricks. We're lively stones. They tell me that no two snowflakes are exactly alike. There's multitudes uh, beyond number of stars. No two stars are alike. No two sets of fingerprints are alike. The Bible describes the Lord's church as one body with many members. Uh, no two members are exactly the same. We're different in age, we're different in appearance, we're different in backgrounds, we're different in uh, uh, many, many things we can go on. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should always be together. Uh, this uh, something that I just come across this week. In the book of Joshua, chapter 8, you'll find where Joshua is going to build an altar to God at Mount Ebal. And that altar he's going to build is going to be built out of stone. Now, this stone had no tool of iron on it. Again, we're not talking about bricks, we're talking about stones. 
this altar is made of stones, which were different sizes, different shapes. They were different. And on each stone, we find where Joshua wrote the law of Moses on it, on all these stones. Now, that was quite a task, to say the least. It must have been a very huge altar. But the point is, uh, they were all different stones. They were all different, you see. Peter and John were different. You remember when they got the news of the resurrection of Christ? We find where they ran to the sepulchre, and John outran Peter. <laughs> I don't know, John might have been younger, might have been in a little bit better shape, better condition, who knows. But he outran Peter. But when Peter got there, he didn't stop at the entrance like John did. He just barreled on through it right on in, inside. So we see different personalities. Different men have different gifts, etc. There's great diversity among the Lord's people. So we find here, though, that John and Peter are united in prayer. And they're going up to the temple to pray at the hour of prayer, which is said to be the ninth hour. This would be about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. The Jewish people, uh, I'm sure that John and Peter probably prayed pretty continuously throughout the day. But there were specific times that they would go to the temple to pray, and the ninth hour was one of them. So they go to the temple at the ninth hour, about 3 p.m. according to Jewish time. Their, their time started from the 6 o'clock in the evening until the next time, where we start at midnight. So it's about 3 o'clock. They go up there to pray. Now, as they go up there to pray, they come to a certain gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. Now, the temple had ten gates. If you go back and read the second, uh, third chapter of Nehemiah, you'll find where Nehemiah went and inspected the city, and the city of Jerusalem had ten gates. The Babylonians had come and had destroyed this city. They had broken down the gates, actually, and broke down the walls, but he went around and did an inventory. He had ten gates. Each of these ten gates have a name. Each of the names of these ten gates are going to point you to, in some manner or way to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very worthwhile study in that third chapter in the book of Nehemiah. So which gate this is, is uh, a little bit uncertain. Most people believe it's the eastern gate. But all I know here is it's called the gate is called beautiful. And I think it's very appropriate. You know, it's, it's pretty interesting to me how the things that the Lord's involved in, the names of things, uh, have the significance that they do. For example, when the Lord told those apostles to go into the city to prepare for the Passover, uh, he said there you find a man, you know, bearing a pitcher of water, etc. You follow him to the house, where there be a large upper room, but you would talk to the goodman of the house. I like that. To the goodman of the house. Well, right here, this gate that they're going to enter into is called the beautiful gate. Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes 3 and 11, the wise man Solomon said, everything that God hath done is beautiful. Whatever God's hand touches leaves beautiful things, does it not? It's a beautiful thing for me to see each one of you here this morning assembled together in the house of God. This is a beautiful place. We read in the book of uh, Psalms 48, verse 1, it says, Beautiful situation is Mount Zion, the city of the great God. We read in Isaiah 4, 2, where it says, The branch of the Lord is beautiful. When you trace the word branch in the Old Testament, you'll find it has reference to the Son of God. Jeremiah 23, 5, he says, I'll raise up into the house of David a branch that's spelled with a capital B. And uh, this branch shall be glorious. So we have a glorious branch in the Lord Jesus Christ, a beautiful branch. 
When I read the life of Christ, study his life, it's a beautiful life, isn't it? When I see the work of Christ, I study it in the Gospels, it's a, it's a beautiful work that he has done. Isaiah 52, 1 says for us that we should put on, um, put on thy beautiful garments, O Zion. These are garments of worship. These are garments of praise. Uh, the ordinance of God, they're very, very beautiful. So whatsoever God has done, you know, uh, it is beautiful in his time. And so they're going to enter into this gate, and this gate is called Beautiful. Well, it's the eastern gate. Most likely it is. Uh, but anyway, it's a gate that's called Beautiful, one of the ten gates around in Jerusalem. And as they attempt to go through the gate, they encounter a man uh, that is lame. And chapter 3 and chapter 4 tell us several things about this man. This man that is lame uh, is above 40 years of age. He said he was lame from his from his birth, from his mother's womb. Now, sometimes the Lord healed lame people that became lame later on in life as an accident, an injury, or something of that nature. But this man had never walked. This man had never taken a step. This man was lame from his mother's womb. Peter tells the rulers of that day in Acts 4 that he was impotent. He was helpless. Uh, he had to be taken from point A to point B. He had to be taken from one location to another. He could not go uh, on his own. He had to have constant daily help to get wherever he was going. He's over 40 years of age. That being the case, the Jewish people in that day, most all of them had seen him, knew him, perhaps knew about him. And so this was not some stranger who had come into town. This is not a stranger that just showed up that day, um, you know, near the temple. And there was no doubt thousands of people around that temple that day. The temple was always a busy, busy place daily uh, by the Jewish people. They came to make their offerings, their sacrifices. So they came as Peter and John did to pray at a certain time at the temple. And no doubt there were other lame people there. I want you to get this picture. So how is it that Peter's eyes fastened on this lame man, this one man right here? In this, we ought to be able to see the sovereignty of God. We ought to see the compassion of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, and the power of God. Uh, there were other lame people there. There were hundreds of thousands of people there. But the eyes of, the, of Peter and John were fastened on this one particular man who had to be brought there. He was impotent. He was over 40 years of age. He was lame from his mother's womb. Somebody brought him there that day and brought him there and laid him there for the purpose of receiving alms. Now, alms was a common Jewish practice of that day. Nothing wrong with doing it today. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples something about alms, though, in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. He tells them, when you do your alms, he says, do not your alms to be seen of men. Then to give an alms is to give, give help, give assistance. It might be a financial assistance. Oftentimes it was. We'll see in this case here is what the man was hoping to receive. So it might be that. Or it might be some other thing. You know, you insist people in various in many different ways. And so the Lord said, when you do your alms, do them not be seen of men. See, some of the Jewish people did it for recognition, self-recognition. They didn't be seen of men. But he said, if you do your alms, he says, you know, you're to do them in secret. He says, let not your left hand know what your right hand doeth. Uh, you know, 
when I first began uh, preaching and the practice in the, where I was at, grew up in the old Baptist church over there, people hadn't been taught very well about some of the financial things. And so they would come by and just put some money in your hand. And it'd be all folded up. I mean, I could tell they took a lot of time during the service to get it all folded up and all nice and neat, just like a little ship, you know. And anyway, and they'd put it in your hand. And uh, I think they thought the Lord was saying that. was said, let not your left hand and what your right hand doeth. But anyway... Um, <laughs> anyhow, uh, he says that's the way you're to do it. So the Lord didn't condemn giving alms. In fact, he, he supported it, but he taught them the right way to do it and the right purpose in doing it and the right motive in doing it. So here's this man uh, who's laying lame. So I just brought him there at the temple, outside the temple. Now let's know something about this man that ought to remind us of ourselves. Now, this man is not dead. He's alive. I read one man wrote, when Adam transgressed God's law in the Garden of Eden, he passed his lameness on us. Does that make sense to you? Passed his lameness on us. No, he passed his death on us. There's a lot of difference between being dead and being lame. This man is not dead. But we are, by nature, lame from the standpoint that without God's instructions and God's grace, we don't know how to walk before him in an acceptable way. God's word will teach us that. This lame man was poor. That's why he's asking for alms. And by nature and apart from God, we're all bankrupt sinners, are we not? Just bankrupt sinners. If God lifted up to us to pay the debt, the debt would never be paid, right? Because we don't have the, the funds to pay it with. We don't have the righteousness to pay it with. We don't have the acceptable works in the sight of God to pay it with. He's also outside the temple, which means he's separated from the house of worship on the inside and we're separated from God by nature we're separated from God as well so this is the condition here of this man this man was impotent and until the Lord deals with us in his mercy and grace there's nothing we can do that would please the Lord God of heaven just nothing and so we see I think a picture of ourselves to some degree in this man and as he as Peter and John approach the temple approach this gate that's called beautiful. They see the man there, and they, their eyes were fastened on him. Now, let's notice what he says to him. In verse 3, he says, Who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, ask an alms. He asked for one. And Peter fastened his eyes upon him with John. Now, they're together, but Peter's going to be the spokesman. Peter's going to be the one that's highlighted here. And Peter fastened his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. He was expecting to receive money. He was expecting to receive something, some type of financial gift. He was expecting to receive silver and gold, I believe. So what does Peter tell him? He says, silver and gold have I none. Now when he first heard these words, wonder what he thought. Here he's hoping to receive an alms. Here are two men, not one, but two men. And they're approaching him, and they told him to look upon him, them, and so he's expecting something. He's expecting a financial contribution, a financial gift of some kind, or some type of assistance, but Peter says, silver and gold have I none. I don't have silver, and I don't have gold. To a lot of people, silver and gold means everything, but in the sight of God, silver and gold doesn't mean hardly anything, Okay. Then you take a look in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, and you'll find where Peter says, 
knowing that we're not redeemed by corruptible things as silver and gold. Silver and gold have their place, they have their value, but man in general puts far greater value on silver and gold than he does like the Word of God. But recently in one of our prayer things, we mentioned how in the book of Proverbs, how Solomon teaches very clearly that knowledge, understanding, and wisdom is far superior to silver and gold. So he says, silver and gold have I none. Imagine the man thought probably he was greatly disappointed. If he didn't have silver and gold, what could he have? Well, he says, silver and gold have I none, but the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Rise up and walk. I'd say what he did have was far superior to what the man wanted, right? The man desired silver and gold, but he got something far greater than that. He received instant healing. Now, notice what he does immediately. Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Now, let me just pause on that just for a second. Such as I have. We're all different. I've already said that. We all have different capabilities. We all have different, um, you know, um, thing, or talents and gifts, et cetera, et cetera. We're not all able to do exactly the same, do we? Can we? But we do need to do what we can. As much as I have, whatever that might be. You take a look at the Apostle Paul concerning his gospel ministry in Romans chapter 1, verse 15. He says, for as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you at Rome also. That's all Paul can do. He couldn't use another man's gift. He couldn't preach, you know, and do things other men did, but he could do what he could do. As much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you which are at Rome also. As much as I have, he says, I give unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. It almost sounds like he just took him by the hand with his own power, you know, lifted up this man. But obviously that's not the case. But he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he leaping up stood and walked and then with, with them into the temple. He's no longer separated from God. He walks with them into the temple. Walking and leaping and praising God. What a view that is. I remember 1999, I was blessed to be over there and I walked in this general area. And I looked and I said, I don't know maybe exactly where this man was, but I just ran through my mind this vision, this, this scene right here, of this man standing and walking and leaping and praising God. What a, what a scene that must have been. And all the people that were there, they were amazed at it. Now, what was the man's response? Now remember, this man has never taken a step in his life. This man has never walked. This man has had to be taken for over 40 years from place to place. And now all of a sudden, he can do something he never could do before. He can stand. He can walk. He can leap. He can run. And he immediately begins to praise God. Now in contrast, remember when the Lord healed 10 lepers? Recorded for us over, I think, in Luke 17, he healed 10 lepers. And those 10 lepers went then, you know, to the temple, to the priest to get checked out, etc. How many of those 10 turned around and praised God? One. One out of 10 turned around and praised God. But at least one did. But here we have this man. He doesn't hesitate to praise God. 
Oh, he's doing something he's never been able to do. How his day was changed. Uh, he no doubt he left wherever he left from that day. Somebody took him to where, uh, you know, where he wound up with the hope that he might receive some kind of help. But he had no idea what kind of help he was going to get this day. On this occasion, this day, he got miraculous help. He got help in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, beginning right here and going forth through the book of Acts, and you'll find in the two chapters, chapter 3 and chapter 4, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is magnified. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ is emphasized. See, a name carries with it uh, uh, some degree of power, authority, and reputation. Some people's names carry a lot more of these three things than other people's names do, right? But I'm telling you, the name of Jesus is above every name. Every name. He's given him a name which is above every name. In the name of Jesus is omnipotent power. In the name of Jesus is total and complete authority. In the name of Jesus is the highest reputation any man's ever had here in this world, right? So that's what we're talking about. He was healed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not healed in John's name. He was not healed in Peter's name. And this is the difference between miracles that Christ performed and the apostles performed. The miracles that Christ performed, he did them by his own power in his own name. The apostles, when they did miracles, they did it not in their own power, not in their own name, but they did it in the power of Jesus and in the name of Jesus. You see the difference? Peter didn't say, in my name, rise up and walk. in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ gave authority on that occasion. He exercised his authority and his power. And this man immediately, it was not progressive. It wasn't delayed. He didn't just manage to start gradually getting up. This man immediately stood up and he walked and he ran and he leaped. <laughs> and you can see him going uh, through the courtyard uh, and, and, and praising God. Probably people looked at him and said, who is that guy? You know, but there were, remember, he's over 40 years old. Uh, most of the people there, no doubt, or a great many of the people there, they knew this man. And that's important because they knew this man hadn't walked a step in over 40 years. Notice here. All the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. They were taken back. They were, they were amazed at this. They wondered at this. And as a lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch which is called Solomon's greatly wondering. Solomon's porch is mentioned three times in the Bible. In John chapter 10, you know, the, the sheep and shepherd chapter, you might say, in John chapter 10, um, you're going to find where Jesus made that, that, that declaration or those teachings right there, it was in Solomon's porch. A little bit later on in chapter 5, you'll find where the church met to worship a God at Solomon's porch. So now there at Solomon's porch on the eastern side, uh, the gate called Beautiful, and you got the three men, you got Peter, you got, Jan excuse me, you got Peter and John and the lame man whose name we don't know, but we don't need to know or the Lord to give it to us, of course, right? So we don't need to know his name. We just need to know everything about him. So here's these three men. And then all the people came around them. Now I don't know how many there are, were there. Now this is a lesson on all. A-L-E. All. 
When you read the word all in the Bible, read the word every in the Bible, read the word world in the Bible, you need to study the context and see what world's under consideration, uh, who the every man is under consideration, who the all people were under consideration. I could just say, well, uh, they all came around them. Was that all the people living on the earth at that time around them? Was that all the people in the land of Palestine all around him? No, it was all the people who come to the temple that day that got around him. Now, I don't know how many people that was, but obviously it was a lot of people. I know daily that there was usually hundreds, not several thousands of people that came and were involved in the temple on a regular daily basis. So they all gather around. Peter's got a great multitude. Now, I want you to notice something in the contrast between Peter's experience in Acts 2 and Peter's experience in Acts 3. In Peter's experience in Acts 2, most people know that's the chapter of the day of Pentecost. And that's the day that 3,000 uh, 3, were added to the existing about 120 disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter was a, a Jewish apostle preaching to a Jewish congregation concerning a Jewish Messiah. Now in Acts 3, same thing. Here's a Jewish apostle who's getting ready to speak to a Jewish congregation about a Jewish Messiah. His message is going to be very similar. But in Acts chapter 2, you find have Peter the preacher. This is Peter the apostle, Peter the preacher. In Acts chapter 3, we got Peter the healer. Not that he healed it with himself, but God used him as an instrument in healing this man. In Acts chapter 2, you're going to find this a chapter of great blessings. About 3,000 people were added to the church that day. What's going to happen over here in Acts chapter 3 after all this happens? Remember, he's ministering to thousands over here, one individual over here. Blessings flowed from over here. Arrest and persecution comes to Peter over here in Acts chapter 3. They're all gathered around. Peter sees the situation. Notice what Peter says. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel you at this? Why are you marvel at this? See that the people have paid halfway attention. And I'm, I, I know God's people don't pay attention like they ought to a lot of things. You know, if they'd been halfway paying attention, they'd have seen all the miracles that Christ performed for three and a half years. I mean, we're just talking about a few days after the ascension of Christ right here. So why would they be marveling at the miracle? You know, but they are. Uh, people, you know, sometimes they don't observe. They don't pay attention. I read something the other day. I thought, boy, this is the truth if I ever heard it. And said, you know, Satan don't even try to disguise himself anymore in his present society, and yet most people can't even see him. Think about that. He's not even trying to hide himself anymore. Satan's not even trying to hide himself anymore. He's just right out in the open with it, right? But a lot of people don't even see him, even when he's not trying to hide himself. Now, this man here, they're marveling at this man because they know this man, and they know he hadn't walked a step in 40 years, never walked a step in his entire life, and here he is standing before them. They've seen him standing, walking, jumping, leaping, praising God. He's right here in the middle of them. And so Peter takes the, uh, you know, takes the floor and says, Why marvel you at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we made this man to walk? See, this miracle is going to prove, before it's all said and done, that the Lord Jesus Christ even though he was crucified, is still alive. It's going to prove he's in heaven and he's working his will just as much in heaven as he was here upon the face of this earth. 
This miracle is going to prove that. We'll notice this just a little bit later on. So he says, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Remember, this is a Jewish congregation. The God of our fathers hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Now, this is, pretty, this is a lot of boldness, isn't it? You'll find where Peter was filled with the Spirit, that's where he got his boldness. A little later on in chapter 4, in verse 13, you're going to find where the rulers of that day, when they saw what took place, uh, when they saw Peter and John and what they had done, it said they marveled at these men because these were ignorant and unlearned men, and they marveled at them and the boldness in which they spoke in Peter and John. Now, Peter and John, how could they be doing this? They were ordinary fishermen. How in the world could they be doing what they just seen done? Because God called them, anointed them, and gave them the power to do so. To them, to the outsiders, they were just ignorant and unlearned fishermen, just ordinary men, fishermen, who were not schooled in the, uh, you know, according to their standards and their schools of that day. And so they marveled about it. But here you find them marveling at this, but Peter says, we didn't do it. It wasn't our power that did it. You see, uh, Peter's got great boldness. And, you know, where was that boldness before the crucifixion of Christ? Where was that great boldness that the, uh, Peter expressed, uh, demonstrates here? Where was it when he denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times? He didn't have the boldness then. He was operating his own flesh back in that day, but not anymore. The Lord's given him boldness. He didn't have that boldness on the other side of the cross. But he's got boldness on this side of the cross, doesn't he? And I tell you, that took a lot of boldness, a lot of courage to stand before that great multitude of Jewish people and charge them with three things. He charged them with delivering Jesus Christ up. They, they, he charged them with denying the Lord Jesus Christ even when Pilate was determined to let him go. Now, you go back and read the Gospels, you'll find three different times where Pilate said, I find no fault in this man and wanted to have him released and they would not allow that. He says, you delivered him up. You denied him. Even when Pilate was determined to release him and to let him go. And Peter's going to use four names of the Lord Jesus Christ here before them. First of all, he says, that God raised his son Jesus. That's the one we know him by the most, right? The name Jesus in the New Testament is recorded 983 times. The word Jesus. The word Jesus means salvation. When the angel came and said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He, God gave him a name that described his work. God gave him a name concerning what he would accomplish, what he would obtain, um, in his lifetime. And when he went to Calvary, he laid down his life. His name is called Jesus. What a wonderful name. How sweet the name, the hymn writer said. How sweet the name of Jesus sound. What? In a believer's ear. Not in a non-believer's ear, but in a believer's ear, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. All through the Gospels, you read the name of Jesus. I was just kind of noticing in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples asked the Lord a question about the stones of the building. And the Lord answers that question, 96 straight verses, the Lord answers that question that they asked him in Matthew chapter 24. He doesn't finish, he gets through Matthew chapter 25. 
And one of the reasons I said that, because 28 chapters in Matthew, and there's three chapters in Matthew where the Lord's name is not used, Jesus. One of them is Matthew 5 and Matthew 6, but that's the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is doing all the talking. And then Matthew tw chapter 25, when Jesus is doing all the talking. And they, they ask a question. It reminds me one time of this story of my dear friend who's gone to be with the Lord, Elder Lottimus Ingo Sr. And him and his son Tony and uh, another man was leaving Mississippi, heading to Vero Beach, Florida, attending the Florida Fellowship meeting. And somebody made the mistake of asking Brother Lonnie a question as soon as he got in the car. He finally answered when he got to Vero Beach, Florida. <laughs> it was continuous conversation all the way. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the Lord doing all the talking here, okay? That's why his name is not mentioned in, Gen in Matthew 25, because he started talking in Matthew chapter 24. And he's still talking in Matthew chapter 25. But anyway, his name is called Jesus, the Son of God. And don't ever forget, he was the Son of God. He was God's Son. He was not Joseph's Son. He was God's Son. God allowed Joseph to be his legal guardian and his legal parent, but he was not Joseph's Son. He was God's Son. And Peter uh, addressed that just right off the bat, you might say. Then he says, but ye denied. This is the second time he's charged and we're denying him. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Did you get that? They desired a murderer. When Pilate was determined to let him go, they would not accept that. They wanted a murderer. They denied him. They delivered him up, denied him. And they were guilty of this. And he's charging them with this. And he calls him the Holy One. Now, his son Jesus, now he calls him the Holy One, as spelled as you see there with a capital H and a capital O. Now, what we're missing in the, among the Lord's people a lot today is a recognition of the holiness of God, the reverence of God. We become a laid-back uh, group of people, so to speak, as the Lord's people. I'm telling you, God is holy, and he expects us to live holy as well. 1 Peter 1.15, Peter says, uh, he said, Be ye holy, as it is written, for I am holy. God was holy. He says, Now, be ye holy. When you go back to the Old Testament, you're going to find where Aaron and his uh, uh, you know, sons that were the first of the high priest, their garments they wore were called holy garments. Their tabernacle was called a holy place, a holy tabernacle. They, the Sabbath, the first time the word holy is used has reference to the Sabbath. He says, You shall observe the Sabbath, for it is a holy day unto the Lord. The three, three in one Godhead, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. He is the Holy One. Holy One. Now, in the book of Revelation chapter 4, you're going to find four beasts have four faces, and one's like a man, one's like a calf slash uh, oxen, uh, one's like an uh, eagle. Um, and, and so you got the man, you got the eagle, you got the, the calf, and you got the other one. Anyway, all these four faces here, all characterized in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what I want to get to you is this. It says these four beasts, they praised God and they said, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, which is, and which is to come. A holy for the Father, a holy for the Son, and a holy for the Holy Spirit. And notice, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, Almighty. 
which was, he was that in the was, he's that in the is, he's that is that which is to come. So he's called here the Holy One. And this was of great interest to me when I began to search this out in the four Gospels. You know the only, the only time he was called the Holy One in the four Gospels? It's going to surprise you. Put your seatbelt on. It was by an unclean spirit. In Mark chapter 1, there's a man came with an unclean spirit. He said, who art thou? He said, I know who art thou. If I come to destroy us before the time, I know, we know thou art the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. The Holy Son of God. The Holy One. The only time he's referred to like that in the four Gospels was by an unclean spirit that Christ will then charge to come out of him, and he did. The Holy One, indeed, called him out of that and got the unclean spirit out of the man. He called him the Holy One and the just, just briefly on the just here. If there was not one that was just, nobody would ever be in glory. Nobody will ever be in heaven before the, throne, before the God of glory who's not just in his sight. How, did they, how will they be just in his sight? Because the Son of God whom he sent, the Holy One that he sent, that he is the just one. And just remember, there's just just one, just one, that's spelled with a capital J. And this just one died in the place of the unjust, according to 1 uh, uh, Peter 3, uh, over here, verse 18. It says, For he hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We were unjust by nature, but the just one died in our place. Now, Paul says the same thing in a different way. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he says concerning Christ, For he became sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Peter says it. Paul says it. They say it in two different ways. They're saying the same thing. If we did not have a representative in the Lord Jesus Christ who took our place on the cross, we would split hell wide open. If we didn't have a representative in the Lord Jesus Christ, we'd spend eternity in, in fire, everlasting fire and torment. But we had a representative, and he was just. He died in the place of the unjust. He who knew no sin uh, died in our place that uh, we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Peter said it. Paul said it. Said it two different ways and said the same thing. That's what, he gives them four names. God's son, Jesus the Holy One, and the just, and the Prince of Life. The word prince means author. Jesus Christ is the author of life. He's life personified. John 14, 6, the Lord said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. When he was speaking unto Martha at the death of Lazarus, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. In that 10th chapter of John, verse 10, he said, I've come that you might have life, and you might have it more abundantly. He's the prince of life. Check the middle uh, reference uh, in the middle part of your Bible right there. You find the word life means author. He's the author of life. He's not co-author. He's the author. He's the author of life. He's the author of eternal salvation. Peter gave him four names. Jesus, the Son of God the Holy One, the Just One, and the Prince of Life, all having reference to this man named Jesus, the Son of God. He gave them four names right here that they could understand. See, when he preached the gospel 
in, to, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and right here in Acts 3, he's not speaking to people unlearned uh, in the Word of God. They had the Word of God. God had given the Jewish people the Word of God. They had the oracles of God. They had the written Word of God. They had the prophets. They had the priesthood, the way of worship, and Moses' law. These were not unlearned people. They should have known what he was saying. He gave them language they could comprehend. He says, in his name, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses, and his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness. Notice, perfect soundness. In the fourth chapter, in verse 10, it speaks about this man before you that is whole. Those important. He was whole. He had perfect soundness. <laughs> He not only raised him where he can walk, but notice he didn't, <laughs> this man didn't have to learn how to walk. When a child is born, the child as soon as he's born doesn't walk, right? The child first of all begins to crawl. Then he begins to try to stand. Then he begins to try to walk. Later on he can run. This man didn't have to learn how to walk. This man didn't have to learn how to stand. This man didn't have to learn how to run. He didn't start off just walking and standing and then a few weeks later started running. No, as soon as he was healed, he stood, he walked, he ran, he leaped, and he praised God all there immediately after, the, after God healed him in the hand of the apostle Peter. I tell you, Peter and John didn't know what to expect that day either, did they? <laughs> when they went up there to the temple at the hour of prayer. The Jewish people would do one of two things after Peter got through with them. He turned this thing into a courtroom. They could do one of two things. They could deny a miracle took place, which they couldn't do. The man was standing right there in front of them. Couldn't be denied. But if they accepted that a miracle had been done in the name of Jesus, they were saying that Jesus Christ was alive. When man nailed Jesus to the cross on Calvary, that was man's last word. But God got the last word when he raised him from the dead. Calvary was man's last word. An empty tomb was God's last word. They couldn't deny it. They just had to accept it. This man whom we crucified is still living. I'm glad to tell you that today. He was crucified, but he's still living.